Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. On this week's episode, I'm delighted to share with you a talk from the Pastoral Refreshment Conference in 2011. We would love to invite you to a future Pastoral Refreshment Conference. You can find out more about the 2022 conferences on our website. Visit www.livingleadership.org forward slash PRC. Here's today's episode. The, um, the planning committee was unequivocal in their request. They said, we want you to do Potiphar's wife and tackle uh, sexual temptation. In other words, don't avoid in the study of Joseph, chapter 39. So our second study, God's holiness as a character former, is uh, chapter 39. But I want to issue this health warning. Uh, We have a 40-minute Bible study this morning. And uh, there's no way I can customize this Bible study to meet every need. Uh, We're going to follow it very helpfully and imaginatively, I think, with uh, two seminars. There'll be opportunity to talk with counselors. There'll be time to walk around. Um, It may be, as the hymn line says, that feelings that lie buried in us uh, will come to the surface and only grace can restore those. And it may be that for some folk here, um, some in-depth counselling may be required. I think you need to prepare yourself for that. Uh, I also want to state my limitations. Um, I've been happily married to one woman for 45 years. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I can't give a female perspective on Potiphar's wife. Someone else will have to do that. I'm not single. Joseph was. Someone else will have to give that. I'm not in my mid-twenties. Joseph was. Someone else will have to give that. So in other words, it's through the lens of who I am that we come to God's word. And I just give that as a health warning. Uh, And to say, I think it's wonderful that as a community gathered here, in our seminars, in our conversations, there will be a corporate wisdom and corporate pastoring, I think, that will emerge out of today. I think the second thing, my way of preface, is to say this is very timely and relevant. Uh, In the Church Times this past week, there was a report from the Evangelical Alliance concerning uh, Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland survey, and the EA said, we we want Northern Ireland churches to pray for our church leaders in Northern Ireland. The survey they had done of 157 church leaders uh, revealed that 10% of those church leaders admitted to unfaithfulness. And 22% said that they were struggling with problems of pornography. Leadership Magazine, in a survey of a 1,000 pastors, said that 12% had admitted committing, this was an anonymous survey, uh, admitted committing adultery whilst in ministry, and 23% with conduct unbecoming. There was a whole range of things that were listed. In a survey of the same magazine of a 1,000 non-pastoral church leaders, 23%, almost double, admitted to sex outside of marriage, 
and 45% of some form of conduct unbecoming. Uh, you can draw on your pastoral experience as we come to this topic this morning, um, as I draw on mine. 20 years as a local pastor and 20 years as a national and international pastor. Just three weeks ago, I sat down with my own pastor, Andrew Green, at Upton Vale in Torquay, and together we prayed for this conference, and I asked him for prayer for this session. Um, that was in the afternoon. We had about an hour and a half talking about this and other matters. At nine o'clock that evening, I had a text from a friend in ministry who I've known since he was 18 to say, I need to speak with you pretty quickly. And when I spoke with him, um, he was a warrior who had fallen. And even as I share it with you, um, a season of madness, he's staying with his wife and she's a star woman and he's a star guy. But because of that season of madness, he has to step down. Out of my pastoral experience, I have to tell you about um, serial offenders and pastors with multiple partners. Uh, they had a serious sex addiction and it went undetected and unnoticed and somebody along the way should have spotted it. I want to talk to you about sinful and stupid pastors. One pastor who said to me, David, I must experience sexual fulfillment in my life before I die, and I'm not getting it in my marriage. That is both sinful and stupid. Or the man who said to me, out of tenderness, David, this affair didn't begin with sex, it began with sin. A guy who was a very vulnerable person in a marriage without emotion and tenderness. And at the end of a long day, and in a period when he was tired, a member comes up and puts her arm on his arm and says, Pastor, you look tired. And that tender touch was the first beginnings of an affair. I uh, confess that the Ananias and Sapphira passage, Acts 5, where um, as a result of God's discipline, judgment, visiting the church, uh, fear, great fear fell upon the gathering in dealing with pastors who have failed and broken churches and really messed up families. Um, I often come home and just uh, give my beloved wife a huge hug. I say two things, but for the grace of God go I. And secondly, uh, a fear comes upon us as I want to come upon this gathering today. Uh, just as sometimes uh, we, we see something um, and we say, I never want that to happen to me. Uh, I hope this will happen here today. We live in a very highly sexualized culture. We can be uh, misled into thinking that somehow it's never been as bad as this. Well, thankfully, we've got Joseph in Genesis. And the New Testament, if you get behind the New Testament pages, my word, that was a highly sexualized culture. I think we need to be very specific and life applied in our Bible teaching. You need to dig around in 1 Corinthians 7. But amongst all the things that Paul, I think, is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, when there was cultic prostitution, and when people, male and female, went to 
the cult in order to sleep with prostitutes to bring fertility to the land and prosperity to business. When a partner, male or female, becomes a Christian, it's a deep issue. Do I continue living and sleeping with my partner? Because they were brought up in the sexualized cult, uh, cult, prostitute atmosphere and climate. Somehow they felt, well, if I continue to sleep with this person who is not yet a believer, it's a very earthy application. I happen to believe that when Barnabas went looking uh, for Saul in Antioch, Acts chapter 11, and brings uh, Paul, who now has been enriched by his time in the desert, and he's reflected not only on the revelation of the Old Testament, which he knew well, but he now reread with new eyes. I think it was that how to live a godly life in a pagan city that pours out of him. The pastorals are all about the climate of money, sex, and power. 1 Corinthians, very specific teaching. Um, Philip Seddon, in a Grove booklet um, uh, called Redeeming Eros, has reread the, the Song of Songs. I don't necessarily agree with everything that's there, but it's a very stimulating piece of writing, tackling the most erotic book in the Bible. When I was a young teenager, my youth leader gave me Hudson Taylor's interpretation of the Song of Songs, all about our love for the Lord. And, and Seddon really tackles head-on, is this an erotic passage describing the love of man and woman, or is it the love and devotion that all of us should have for God? And you can see how he synthesizes this passage. But what he does early on is he talks about how can we explore, frankly, deep aspects of love which may seem too intimate and personal to share? How can we explore feelings of pleasure which can revive the fear that if it feels good, it must be bad. How do we deal with disappointment with sex, with ourselves and with one another? How might we men and women today speak the same language to one another concerning sex? How might we explore without fear aspects of deep spiritual experience? In other words, how do we marry our sensuality, our, our sexuality, and our spirituality as we stand before God? They are good questions. And somewhere within the safety of the church, we have to make space, I think, in our highly sexualized culture for deep, life-applied Bible teaching on these areas. Okay, Genesis 39, all that was by way of introduction. Joseph has been sold as a slave in Egypt, and as he's carried, possibly in chains, on his way to the slave market, he travels up the uh, Nile Valley, and he sees all these newly built pyramids, he sees the shrine to the multiple gods, Ra, the sky god, and Nu, the sky goddess, goddess, and by his eventual purchase of Potiphar. Potiphar, incidentally, the name of his god is built into his name. He who Ra has given, that's the name of Potiphar. So Joseph, God with him, comes into this pagan household. And what do we find? The Lord, verse 2, was with Joseph and he prospers. Or the great uh, William Tyndale translation, the Lord with, with Joseph, and he was a lucky fellow. <laughs> How do we know when God is with someone? Because he blesses them and he prospers them. I think that phrase that the, the Lord was with uh, Joseph suggests a very close and personal relationship. And as chapter 39 unfolds, I think there's clear evidence of that. And in verse 3, the blessing of Joseph uh, by God is so much that his boss, um, Potiphar, observes it. 
He discerns the source of Joseph's success. So verse 4, he makes him the overseer of his household. And from the moment he was promoted, God's blessing, verse 5, comes to the house of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Um, It's a wonderful fulfillment of the Genesis 12 promise. Remember how to great-grandfather Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham was promised that not only will I bless you, but I'll make you to be a blessing to many, many people. Well, here's that promise being unfolded in the house of Potiphar. And it's a comprehensive blessing. No, house and field. Everything was going to prosper. The only concern that Potiphar really had was over the menu. That's what it says in verse 5. He wasn't worried about anything, just the food. And we're talking now, uh, if we put all these chapters together, we're talking about a timetable of about 11 years. So the event we're about to explore, 17 when he was sold at the slave market, uh, we're possibly talking about a man in his mid to late 20s. So Joseph is um, well-established, well-respected, well-trusted. Just a little comment on God uh, prospering him and being with him. I was uh, at a conference and I met a guy called Ian who was a, um, he worked in the construction industry. He was quite well-placed in a company that had worked on the Wembley Stadium, the new Wembley Stadium, new Terminal 5, and uh, uh, he was at director level. And he shared with me how one day uh, they had a director's meeting and the chairman said, the, the money isn't coming in as quick as it should be. And uh, the long-term order book isn't fitting up as it should be. He said, I want you to go away and over the weekend, uh, think about it and come back and we'll have a meeting next week. He said, on Saturday I went to church and uh, it was a wedding and the uh, bride and groom had chosen the hymn, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, the King of Creation, which has the line, Who doth prosper thy word and defend thee. He noted it, put it away, goes to church Sunday morning, and unusually, they sang the same hymn on the Sunday morning. Praise to the Lord the Almighty. The Lord who doth prosper thy word and defend it. Monday morning, uh, they have a director's meeting. He's known to be a Christian, respected for that. Uh, so the chairman of the board says, um, anything to report over the weekend? And in his report, Ian Boldy said, well, he said, I went to church twice over the weekend, and we sang the same hymn. The Lord who doth prosper, thy work and defend thee. Nobody laughed, nobody mocked. And in the weeks that followed, um, the money began to flow again, and the order book began to fill up. And sometime after this, when they had a director's meeting, Ian said that they sat around the board, and the first thing the chairman said, he looked at Ian and said, have you been to church recently? <laughs> Have you sung any good hymns? <laughs> you need to share that. Because what it means here is that God blesses and prospers those who are faithful to him. God prospered Joseph, and he prospered those he was working for. And then Mrs. Potiphar enters his life. I'm going to give you six lessons that I hope will be helpful as we unfold this during the day. And the first of the six lessons is this. In verses 6 and 7, sexual temptation is unavoidable. Joseph, now in his uh, mid-late 20s, well-built and handsome, 
That's how he's described. Described in similar language to his mother Rachel, who was very beautiful and graceful to look at. And Mrs. Potiphar, in those verses, after a while, takes note of him and says, come to bed with me. Now, the structure of the whole chapter is like this. Um, verses 1 to 6 and verses 19 to 23 have the language of God was with Joseph. We've just heard it read to us. That's about life's abiding order. Life has that structure. There's something wonderfully orderly about today. We've sung our hymns, we've read our scripture, you know what I'm trying to say. Part of our life is about life's abiding order, but in verses 7 to 18, there is life's inevitable risks where God's name is not mentioned. That doesn't mean to say, as we said yesterday, God is always the absent presence. His voice and his presence is off stage. How can he be with Joseph, prospering him, rescuing him, and not protecting him? God is there. But the whole point of the writer is he wants to show us that in the abiding order of life, there are inevitable risks. And the risk comes in the form of sexual temptation. Part of daily life. It's an inevitable risk. I don't really need to say to an educated group like this that sinless perfection is not a gift that you will receive this side of glory. But I want to say it anyway. I also want to say to this group that Satan is no respecter of denominational groupings. We somehow think that if we're in whatever, charismatic, conservative, Reformed, grace abounding, wherever it is, in every tribal family, there is a history of moral failure. We have no right to point fingers. We simply have to say, by the grace of God, we walk, and in his fear we walk. Number three, sexual attraction can happen in the lives of the happily married. Some of my mates who fall by the wayside are deeply happily married. One friend said to me that, um, and he loves his wife, and they're still together. He said, we just drifted apart. We never had any rounds. I was tired. She was tired. We had a grinding routine caring for our children. And then he added this, and there were those specials in the diary. Now, I am... It's a shame Janet isn't here because she would stand up here and say amen. I am not the world's best at diary management. But I'll tell you what, I know how to get it right because I've got it wrong so often. When it comes to putting a priority on the family, I think when the new diary comes, um, however far ahead you're planning, birthdays, anniversaries, Red letter days, that's what we call time with our grandchildren now. We, we separate them out and give them individual red letter days. Uh, I turn down, and often do in fact, um, speaking engagements which appeal very strongly because somehow there was a family commitment in the diary. We used to have uh, not only a day off, but we, we acknowledged the Jewish Sabbath. We didn't call it that, but but that Friday night, that Janet and I had actually been to a friend's house and celebrated Jewish Sabbath, and we were envious. The way in which they wove um, Old Testament scripture and uh, prayers and blessing the family and laughter and food, and, and they do it every week. And I think just to guard those moments is so important. 
And I would say to you, sexual temptation is unavoidable, whoever we are. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Anyone who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he falls. The second lesson from this uh, Joseph passage is this. Develop devotional practices to deepen your relationship with God. This is verses 8 and 9. Joseph revealed what a man of faith he was and how God was with him to prosper and protect. When he was propositioned by um, Mrs. Potiphar, look at the three reasons he gave for not sleeping with her. And he must have anticipated this moment. Uh, This approach is so thought out. I think it's a strategy that God has given him in this pagan house with a sexual predator. And incidentally, this is the passage we're looking at. There are examples of male predators in other parts of the scripture. So we must be even-handed. But Joseph's strategy. Number one, he thought of Potiphar. Uh, He's trusted me with everything except you. Number two, he thought of Potiphar's wife. You are a married woman. You are the wife of my boss. Number three, he thought of God. This would be a great wickedness and sin against God. These three convictions, I believe, reveal a deep relationship with a holy God. By the way, this is a righteousness apart from the law. The Ten Commandments haven't been given. The coded laws we have got it uh, have not been written yet. And Joseph was revealed, uh, God revealed to him that righteousness which is pleasing to a holy God. So when the moment came, this godly man knew what to say. There was a strategy in place. Now we have a revelation richer to hand than Joseph could ever call upon. And these I just give to you. I mean, there are many, many more, but just to illustrate uh, what I want to say and enforce in this particular um, section. Proverbs eight sixteen: the six things that God hates and the seven things that are detestable to him. You'll know how the Lord uh, hates haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, which is what Mrs. Potiphar did, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Then there is this deeply moving, intimate warning by parents to their son about adultery. Son, keep your father's commands. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. They will keep you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. And so it unfolds. Remember reading years ago how Billy Graham read a chapter of Proverbs every day of his life. Down-to-earth, practical, dealing with real-life issues. Good advice to younger men and women who follow after us. Luke 4, the temptations of Jesus. It is written. Every one of those three temptations was, the tempter was slain by the word. And what about 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 10? Eight reasons for sexual purity. The eight reasons for sexual purity in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, they begin with the command of Jesus. They go through to God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Each of you should learn to control his own body. Self-control comes in, in there in a way that's holy and honorable. 
because it is a witness. Don't be like the heathen who don't know God. And then the community comes in. You shouldn't wrong your brother or sister and take advantage of them. We'll come back to that in a moment, how private sin eventually becomes a public issue. And then the Lord will avenge. The Lord punishes. The Lord is gracious. But the Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. For God calls us not to be impure, but to live a holy life. And then there's the reference to the Holy Spirit. The thing that gets me, I have to say personally, if ever uh, I've been walking in those uh, areas around the door of temptation, which leads into the room of sin. And when I look back with shame, I have to confess that uh, I haven't been sufficiently aware that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I can't leave Jesus outside of the door of sin. By his Holy Spirit, he goes in there with me. And I need Psalm 51 for cleansing. You know what they say, that uh, it's easier to know the way in than the way back. The way into the Christian life, the ABCD of following Jesus, the four spiritual laws, whatever you follow, the way in is simpler in many ways, costly for him, but simple to understand when the Spirit opens our eyes than the way back. And finding our way back, especially when we hold the kind of positions that we do. Psalm 51 is the refuge of the sinner. We hide God's word in our hearts. So we do not sin against him, even as Joseph hid God's word in his heart. The third thing is to set clear boundaries. That's verse 10. Set clear boundaries. Uh, Potiphar's wife had a persistent policy of sexual harassment, and it must have been a nightmare for Joseph. He had no one he could share this with. I mean, after all, who's going to believe it? And it's pretty obvious if he shared it with Potiphar, then he, he would be out on his ear immediately. He would lose his job. Someone has said this, as a man, it was very tempting for Joseph to say yes. That's not the limit, the temptation that's there. As a man, it was tempting to say yes. And as a slave, it was very dangerous for him to say no, as proved. And so there was this awareness in Joseph in verse 10. He refused to sleep with Potiphar's wife, and he refused to be with her. As some translation says, he refused to be alone with her. Now, I don't want to sort of um, get too much into the ABC of pastoral ministry, but just a little reminder about rules that should never be broken and boundaries that should never be crossed. When we meet with people of the opposite sex, time, place, ambience are very important. The principle of never being alone with somebody of the opposite sex in a counseling situation in a building. I've practiced for years that if I invited somebody to meet me at my house, my wife would be there. She opened the door. She welcomed somebody in. Uh, she had uh, you know, conversation with them. So they knew that I was not uh, alone. That awareness is so important. The awareness of dynamics. This is the Joseph principle, setting clear boundaries. He determined and refused not to be alone with her. And the awareness of, of, of the personal dynamics that are at work, there must have been, I think as you reflect on the story, um, what we call sexual chemistry, Joseph must have realized this was dangerous. 
and the pastoral awareness that is so important. What technically is called uh, transference and countertransference. How <laughs> people have this idealized view of pastors and ministers, and they have the ability to fall in love, not with you, but with you as God's representative, because you seem so caring, intelligent, helpful, and a good listener. Two or three minutes with your family would disabuse them of that. <laughs> My family know that I am careless, feckless, foolish, indolent, and often hidden behind a newspaper. <laughs> Don't be alone, because isolation leads to temptation. The great quote of A.D. Hart, the, the triple A's, the minister who's arrogant, alone, and addicted. Arrogant to say, it'll never happen to me. Alone, uh, with no mirrors in your life. You know what they say, that the higher you go up the ladder of leadership, the less mirrors there are in your life. You need whatever position of responsibility you arrive in, people who will reflect back to you. A wife who is honest, a family who are honest. Elders, friends, people from the past who knew you before you got to where you are now. Make sure you have plenty of mirrors in your life. I would say if there's any pattern among the people I've had to pastor out of messes, it is the aloneness. It is the sheer loneliness. They did not have buddies who pricked their fantasy and actually said, this is a madness. And I worked uh, in one of my teams. We were close enough to actually get people to identify who was their fantasy figure in the church. And we would just keep our eyes open. And if we saw that they were talking too much to their fantasy figure, open diaries. You know, my wife knows where I am today. And there's been never a time in my pastoral ministry where she doesn't know where I am. I've got a mate who I can't tell you too many details, but he had an international ministry. It was to what I call closed border countries. And he gathered around him a group of people. There was money coming in. And um, he got into the situation of such secrecy that no one would know where he had gone to because he'd say, well, I can't do that. It would jeopardize the people to where I'm going. That was a madness. It was a madness in him. And it was a madness in those who surrounded him. Somebody should have had the courage to say, how is this money being spent? Accountability is important. And addiction, addiction to work, never alter the order. God first, family, if you've been given the privilege of a family second, church and Christian responsibilities third. If you alter that order, then what happens will happen to you as happened to others. A child says to a parent, I think you love the church more than you love me. I'm in a group of four guys who, um, with a changing membership, we've been together over uh, 20 years now. We meet three or four times a year. Once in the year is a really big retreat time. Uh, if I named them, uh, you would know some of their names, but I'm not going to. But the total transparency, whether it be money matters, whether it be matters of sexuality or absolutely everything. We didn't get there on day one. And when the membership changes, the, there are a few hiccups until the chemistry is right, and then we're back at that place of transparency. I heartily recommend it. It's not the team. 
But some, sometimes in the team, some of these problems arise. It's got to be out of the team. It's got to be in a safe place elsewhere. God will guide you. Um, the fourth thing, and that's verses 11 and 12. You need to guard the flock of God from sexual predators. Uh, Potiphar's wife, in verses 11 and 12, must have been planning this moment. Uh, none of the servants are around, the house is empty, and we can presume, possibly, that she arranged for them to be working on outdoor duty. There is the physical approach. There is the sexual proposition. She grabs his toga, and Joseph's tactic is to run. Uh, he leaves his robe behind, which is going to prove the vital evidence. My uh, experience, and remember, I hope I'm being balanced here, we have to be dealing with a female sexual predator here. In other parts of scripture, it's another story. In my experience in the church, male and female predators are on the crowd, and you need to guard the flock, especially if you've got a transient congregation. Your congregation that draws people from a wide area, uh, you need to have many, many eyes of shepherds keeping guard. I think of a young guy who turned up in one of our congregations who had worked for a global missions organization. With the experience I have now, I would have probably sent an email and just said, you know, can we check this one out? He was around and rich in experience and powerful in ministry and so on. Got emotionally entangled uh, with one of our single mums with a family and moved on. And three months later, she was pregnant. Or the young woman that arrived on our doorstep with an amazing testimony. Absolutely fantastic. And after about a month there, first one of our young 20s, male, came up, and then another came up quite independently, very embarrassed, shamefaced, sheepish, to say they'd both been propositioned. Or the baptism service where I was preaching, a church where um, what I would call a very wise, safe pair of hands passed Four candidates for baptism. The most moving was the man whose um, wife and daughter had been killed in a car smash. And uh, everybody was on the edge of their seat as they heard this uh, wonderful tale. The pastor's son happened to be in the gallery. He had come because of a special occasion. And the uh, pastor phoned me the week after the baptism to tell me some terrible news. The pastor's son, who was a very senior policeman, had gone back into his office on the Monday morning because something just triggered him and he'd seen this person before, went into the files. The man was a convicted paedophile. His wife and his daughter were alive and well in a city not more than 40 or 50 miles away. He'd wormed his way into the affections of two families. Praise God, nothing had happened. I simply say to you, it's a New Testament phrase, guard the flock of God from those who are sexual predators the fifth principle is this. It's when private matters become public knowledge, there are devastating consequences. This is verses 13 to 15. The sexual harassment of Joseph, which has been a private issue between Potiphar's wife and Joseph, her predatory plans and his defensive tactics, a private matter, when her advances are rebuffed and she goes public carrying his toga and tells the servant, at that moment, a private matter has become public knowledge with devastating consequences for uh, Joseph. So it's in the public domain. It was very shaming. Joseph was innocent. 
And sometimes we may be innocent, but sometimes we and those we're involved with are not innocent. I simply want to drive home beyond the particulars of this passage when the private becomes public knowledge. There are devastating consequences that we need to hear about. I want you to imagine it's a Friday afternoon, and if I had an audio tape, I think it would break our hearts to hear this. A minister who's failed, he and his wife who are staying together, have agreed that they have to tell the children for them. They're not going to tell them during the school week. They think they'll wait till Friday afternoon so they have the weekend to recover and recruit. And so dad, with some measure of courage, says he's having to step down because of his acting foolishly. The shock, the anger, the disappointment, the speechlessness. Each child reacts differently. Just play that tape in your mind and say to yourself, and I think if my mate was here, he would say this, if you love your family, you will douse the fire of illicit passion today, right now. That is too big a sacrifice to make. I think my mate would look back at his season of madness and would say it was not worth the price. And it isn't worth the price. Take note, you heard it here. And then there's the church community. When, when the private becomes public knowledge, the devastating consequences in the church community, let alone the family. Stan Grenz, one of our very gifted evangelical theologians, a dear friend of mine, called home to glory um, before, really, the riches of his life could be rolled out in his writings. Wrote an article many years ago now, Called, when the pastor fails, it denigrates the integrity of ministry. He talks about how when a pastor fails, it confirms the skepticism of the critics. It turns seekers away. Believers are disillusioned. And then he has this telling phrase, from a human perspective, it makes the death of Christ irrelevant. We dare not allow this to happen, he says. In two very different churches where I pastored, a couple of guys uh, came up to me at some point in my ministry and apologized. One, in fact, apologized after I'd left the church. And 15 years later, he said, I, I couldn't receive anything from you because in a church I was previously a minister there. And I just couldn't trust you, not because it was you, but because of the position you held. We need to write that clearly in our mind. The fifth principle, when the private becomes public knowledge, there are devastating consequences. And the sixth is verses 16 to 20, and the sixth I've called, called the role of the spouse. The focus is back on Potiphar. Uh, verse 17, Mrs. Potiphar comes with the evidence in her hand, and she blames her husband. Your Hebrew slave that you bought in the slave market and installed in our house, he's made sport of me. Verse 19, this is the way your slave treats me. Classic blame transference. And incidentally, a deep racial slur in that phrase, Hebrew slave. I won't use the words, but you know all the words that were not meant to use. She uses them. And what does it say about Potiphar? He burned with anger. 
Now, the text is silent on what kind of relationship they had as husband and wife. Um, you might draw something from the earlier reference we had that he wasn't concerned with anything except his menu. I mean, that may give a clue, maybe. But do you realize he could have killed Joseph on the spot? No questions asked. He didn't quiz Joseph. And some have said prison is a very light sentence for a major crime. Why? Did he believe his wife? Had there been a history of this kind of behavior with other slaves? Was he confused that the man in the early verses who had brought prosperity to his house is now the man accused of sleeping or at least sexually assaulting his wife? I think when you consider the role of a spouse, it raises more questions than answers. But I had to apply this pastorally to you in this way. We know together the terrible carnage and cost of family life when something like this happens. And I think, and maybe they will come out in some of our sharing in seminars, the responsibilities, the bigger responsibility, is on the person who has been the predator. But I just share with you what I call pastoral notes. Pastors who've shared with me my own observations. The testimony of a Christian woman. Serial adulterer, a recovering sexual addict. Who said this, my husband enabled my behavior by his passive behavior. I am responsible for what I did. But it would have helped me if he had put his foot down and said, I'm not living with this anymore. Second, pastoral notes, I detect a compliance in spouses when faced with the facts. And I would have been surprised if there had been holy anger, I would not have been surprised if there had been holy anger. Instead, there was a sympathetic understanding, which revealed perhaps a weakness on the part of the spouse. Third, this is a hero-worshipping wife who has put her husband on a pedestal and is aware that he publicly flirts. She sees herself as a leader of the fan club, and in her immaturity says, but I'm the one who takes him home. I leave those questions hanging because I think the role of Potiphar is one that poses more questions than answers. These are deep issues associated with sexual temptation. And as we reflect on them, we may well need the help of others. We're moving to a conclusion. Let's just look briefly at this uh, closing parts of chapter 39, faced with all the injustice of false accusations, Joseph is in prison, but God was with Joseph in prison. And we will come back and pick up with our character Joseph in prison tomorrow morning. But I want to conclude by asking you to look at chapter 38. And I want to ask this question of you, why is this unsavory passage in God's word? There have been those who've I think trivialized it by saying that it's a storyteller's technique 
to keep the reader hanging on the edge of the seat so that uh, as Joseph, out of the pit in chains, is sold to the Midianites, what's going to happen? Well, you have to wait a chapter and then pick it up at 39. That's a trivial suggestion. What I think is more likely is that there is a direct contrast here between Joseph and his brother Judah and how they handle their sexuality. And the second thing which I want to show to you is chapter 38, I think, is one of the first times in the Old Testament when God demonstrates he is willing to be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sins of many. Here are the shadows of Calvary. Here are the whispers of Jesus our Savior. On a human level, chapter 38 of Genesis is an unedifying story of incest, prostitution, and hypocrisy. The brother-in-law, uh, the um, uh, Joseph brother Judah, um, and his daughter-in-law Tamar, she's been married off, uh, an arranged marriage, and um, there are three sons. Judah has married Shua, a Canaanite woman, and their three sons are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And in verse 6, Jacob selects Tamar as the bride for his first son. But as you can see, the scripture says Ur was wicked, and the Lord put him to death. So step forward the second son, because this was Leverite law, that you now have to speak with your sister-in-law and produce an heir for your dead brother. Very common in Israel. We shouldn't be shocked by this. Um, it was the obligation of the closest brother to produce a son for the dead brother. There was no social security in those days, so they had family social security. This was their way of caring for widows. It guaranteed the inheritance of the deceased son and gave the woman her insurance for old age. So it was the cultural law. It's outlandish to us, but it's integral to the story. The second son, Onan, obeys but refuses to cooperate. Why should he simply serve as a sperm donor? The son would not be his to bring up anyway, so he breaks the covenant, verse 10, and the Lord's not pleased with him, so he dies. Now Judah, at this point, now acts unjustly. Because in the law, he should have permitted his third son, Shelah, to sleep with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Two of his sons have already died, so he thinks perhaps this woman is bad luck, and he's not going to risk the youngest. So he airbrushes Judah, airbrushes Tamar out of the family. He was the head of the family. And under the law of those days, he should have cared for his daughter-in-law. And so another family mess has been created. The story unwinds. Um, Judah, uh, Judah's wife dies. Sure. And verse 12, Judah, uh, as an agricultural man, goes to Timnah for sheep shearing time. And prostitution, as we've already seen, is very common. So people engage in sex with prostitutes to bring agricultural fertility. Tamar, in desperation, resorts to taking off her widow clothes and poses on the street corner as a prostitute to entrap her father-in-law. Judas, a man of the world, and resorts to cult prostitution, not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. Says, let me come to you. You haven't got any money promises her a kid from the flock, but she says, well, where is the kid? I need some guarantee. 
And so she obtained from him the signet, the cord, and the staff. Signet, which is the, the distinctive seal sign that it was Judah, worn around the neck, often used for purchase. So he takes that off and gives it to her. In addition, he gives her the staff, a symbol of his authority in the clan. He parts with these to sleep with a prostitute. He sleeps with her, he goes home, and she resumes wearing her widow clothes. Three months later comes the news that she's pregnant. And um, pick it up in chapter 38. What does Judah say when he's told, verse 24, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. As a result, she's now pregnant. He's ignorant that it was his daughter. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant, she said, by the man who owns these. And she said, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognizes them and says, she's more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, and he never slept with her again. His confession, and we'll pick him up later, is a sign that God is working in Judah's life. So why is this story included? I think Moses is granting insight into the family tree from which first came King David and ultimately the Messiah Jesus. The question is, can God use people like this? And the answer is yes. Turn with me the last reference today to the Bible, to Matthew chapter 1. You know this passage well, and you probably preached on it. But to have new eyes. The family tree of Jesus, the opening of the New Testament. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, no mention of Joseph. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And it goes on to mention four women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Tamar posed as a prostitute and committed incest. Verse 5, Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a pagan Moabite. And verse 6, Bathsheba, an adulteress. But by the grace of God, they're in the family tree of Jesus. What a wonder that Jesus comes to be known by Judas' name, not Joseph's. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. The Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Revelation 21, verse 12. The name of 12 tribes written on the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem include Judah's name. We too often say, we have a messy past and they have a messy past and God can never use this to his glory. The sad tale of Tamar and Judah says, God can take the most unlikely people from very imperfect backgrounds and weave them by grace into his salvation story. One story to close with. I was preaching on the uh, Luke 15 passage of the prodigal son. And uh, a woman at the end of the service who was a stranger to me, although I knew her family, came and said, as you were speaking, um, I had a vision and I wonder if you can help me with this vision. The vision was that, she said, during the service, I, I just saw this 
queue of people. And they were queuing for what I can only describe as a very bright light. And she said every one of them was dressed in sparkling white clothing. It was dazzlingly bright. And then I saw myself come and stand at the end of the queue. And I was dressed in black rags and didn't believe I belonged there. And then as I watched, she said, somebody dressed in even more dazzlingly bright clothing came and took me from the back of the queue and led me past all these people dressed in white. And I just disappeared into the whiteness of the white that they were keen to see. And her question to me was this, do you think God was speaking to me? Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.